What do markets do for us? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jen Deermeyer. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jen Deermeyer. Jen Deermeyer is an Associate Professor of Economics and Assistant Department Chair in the Management Department at Ferris State University. Before joining Ferris State, she was an Assistant Professor of Economics and Director of the Centre for Entrepreneurship and Political Economy at Hamden Sydney College. She earned her PhD in Economics from George Mason University in 2009. While at George Mason, she was a Mercatus Centre PhD Fellow. So, Jen, in each episode we start with a question and go wherever the discussion takes us. So I'll kick it right off. What do markets do for us? Well, thanks, Alex. Um, This is probably my favorite question. Uh, I think of my job, actually, as a teacher of economics uh, to be um, perpetually amazed by the market. If I had to have one a one-line job description, that's what it is that I'm supposed to do. Uh, Because I really think that most people, students, um, but people in general just don't have a good idea of exactly what's happening. And because of that, they don't have really um, the, the proper amazement for how everything uh, is, is happening uh, in the market. So um, my, I don't have a one-line answer to what do markets do for us. Um, but I can start by uh, just being a little bit amazed by what markets do. So if you think about your everyday life, You know, if you even just start from this morning and, you know, what you did when you get out of bed and um, you think about all of the things that you interact with. And so for a minute, I'm going to stick with just like physical things, but eventually we can actually just move move right beyond that and and let our amazement travel even further. But um, if you just think about the number of things that you interact with every single day, right, and some of them are familiar things. So you get up. Uh, you step on your floor, right? You go to the bathroom, there's water running, you uh, brush your teeth, there's toothpaste there. Uh, you know, you have all of these things that you do. You get dressed and you have, I assume, a, a closet of clothes that is more than like three things. In it, right? <laughs> uh, and then you walk out, I mean, most people do. Um, and so you walk out, although after the Marie Kondo um, trend. Maybe you only have like four things left in there, but I don't know. Um, so, you know, you walk out, you go, you get coffee. If you're me, you get coffee several times a day. Um, and basically shockingly, almost everything that you do in a day goes almost exactly to plan. And you don't think about that because everything that you, you know, when it goes not according to plan it, that's the obvious part. Like when it works exactly right, you don't think about it, right? You don't think about the fact that you go to get gas and there's gas there and you go into the gas station and they have a little Debbie's there. And then when you uh, go to get coffee, they have coffee and creamer and the stirrer and every single thing that you need and the lid and the little paper sleeve to put on the cup, right? Um, So you just don't think about that fact. I, I seem to have a talent for requesting things from the store that do not, um, that are not there. I don't know if it's, you know, just like a special thing for me. But um, so whenever my husband's at the store, he sends me a text like, oh, what can I pick up? And I'm like, oh, well, if you could just pick up the medium sized bag of Andy Cap's hot fries, not the cheddar fries, the hot fries, I like the spicy ones, uh, but I don't want a big, big bag. And then, you know, he's looking, he's like, seriously, Jen, you know, they have the little bag of Andy Cap's hot fries. Is this sufficient for you? And, you know, I kind of huff and puff and, and accept accept what what the world is giving me at the moment. Um, but but if you think about it, it's it's almost ridiculous that I could have such a specific request. Right. And and expect it to be fulfilled every single time. You know, what are your individual specific preferences that you just expect to be fulfilled every single time that you go to the store. And and once you start to realize how many of those you have, then you get so annoyed when they're out of blank, right? Um, you can start really thinking about, well, what does it take to make that happen, right? What does it take so that every time you go to the store to get cinnamon raisin oatmeal, they actually have cinnamon raisin oatmeal, right? Uh, it's, it's odd um, if you think about that. So. Um, 
really in short, that's what it is that markets do for us. They bring us stuff, lots and lots of stuff, and they bring it to us at prices that are far too cheap, frankly. I mean, I know everything isn't cheap. Um, Verizon just offered to sell me a $700 new iPhone, uh, which I thought was a kind offer, but I declined. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, I, I also just bought a $50 uh, smartphone for my son, right? So that was pretty good. I was feeling good about that price. Um, and while as consumers, none of us are really excited about, we'd all prefer prices to be lower, at least we can find solace in the fact that as producers, we'd all prefer prices to be higher. So at least there's that, right? Uh, but yeah, markets bring us a million and one things, or experiences, or the space to do those things in, or have those thoughts every single day, every hour, right? And they do it for relatively cheaply, and without us having to even think about it or worry about it, we can just expect it to be there. So that's really, that's the miracle of the market. So ultimately, you think that people take this for granted, all the activity that's coordinated on a day to day basis, which is really behind the scenes for most people's life. You know, that that's what the market does. It can coordinate all this activity. And like you said, uh, we only notice when something goes wrong. Yeah, it's the great coordinator. Right. So Leonard Reed has the famous essay, I pencil, uh, where he kind of just walks through a small fraction, frankly, of what it takes to get a pencil produced and brought to consumers. And, uh, and I show this to my students every semester and they, they're always amazed by how much has gone into it because we just don't think about it. Cause frankly, that's, that's what, how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to have to think about how every single thing that we use gets made, gets coordinated, gets produced. Right. Um, but another amazing factor or another amazing part of that story is really just the a massive amounts of coordination that have to happen, right? So if you have thousands or tens of thousands of people or millions of people contributing to the production of one good, uh, you have to coordinate all that, right? Or I shouldn't say you have to, all that <laughs> has to be coordinated, right, right? Right. Because if you, uh, if you think about it, you know, you, yes, you have to, you start with a log and you chop down the log and then you send the log to the uh, factory where it's machined and then it's put into nice boards and then that's sent to the pencil factory and they've bought the, the lacquer and the metal and the ferrules and they've contracted someone else to get the graphite and all the things that have to happen. But all that has to happen like in specific times as well, mm -hmm. right? It just can't happen whenever, right? right. It has to kind of happen <laughs> in a series that will make it uh, possible to produce all of these things in a way that's not going to be just enormously expensive. Right. Right. So uh, I looked it up and uh, there were 640 closings of transportation companies in the U.S. in the first half of 2019. Hmm. Right. So think about that. So in the first half of 2019, 640 transportation companies went out of business. Okay. And that is just sounds like a disaster. It, imagine if you had to be in charge of getting some, you know, of producing something, no doubt you have had a disruption in your supply chain. Right. And so, and all of these plans that were made and that were kind of rolling along now have to be adjusted. Right. And they have to find new ways to get these things where they need to be in some sort of timely manner. And so the market is not only cool and great because of the fact that people are, um, or, or that it's coordinating people's behaviors, but it's coordinating behaviors in a constantly changing environment, right? The circumstances of production and transportation are constantly changing, but so are consumers. We are so fickle, right? We right. want uh, cinnamon raisin oatmeal today, but tomorrow we want a bagel. Right. And so we're consumers are extremely fickle. Transportation and production is extremely difficult to keep stable. Right. So 
the market is really doing a big job. Right. And and I like the idea as well. Like it's ex- it's explored explicitly in iPencil, but also it's in a lot of Hayek's works as well. The idea that, okay, ultimately not one person, as they say, knows how to make a pencil. Like, And that they don't mean that theoretically, like someone couldn't put on a whiteboard here and say make a pencil. But in terms of all the action and all the interaction that needs to happen to get that pencil on that shelf in a store, in a, uh, in a business warehouse or like in a 99 cent store or whatever, not one person can actually sit there and figure out all the logistics and all the little bits of knowledge that are required to actually get that pencil there. So that's a very interesting aspect of the whole conversation as well as just there's the coordination, but then the knowledge as well. Yeah, so this is sort of huge. It's interesting because I I start this discussion often asking who can make a pencil, who thinks they can make a pencil. And uh, there's always some brash youngster who is willing (laughs) to claim that they could make a pencil. And then I put some stipulations. I said, well, you can't have any help. And they said, okay. And every time the first thing that happens is they're out chopping a branch off a tree. And I'm like, oh, well, great. Where'd you get the axe? And they're like, oh, (laughs) well, I bought the axe. I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, you can't have any help from anyone. Right. And so and then, you know, they've got before you know it, someone's holding a rock and they're pounding like a stick into like something and then they're burning things, you know, after having rubbed the sticks together to make charcoal. And then, and, you know, at the end of the day, they have like this uh, terrible, un, you know, useful twig with a piece of charcoal stuck on the end of it. And they're like, pencil, <laughs> you know, and it's so it's not a not, you know, that they you know what you need to do, right? It's not a knowledge of the general principle of pencils that's at stake here. That's the problem here. It's really a knowledge of just how to get it done, given the world that we actually live in, right? So how to get this done is just, this is an immensely difficult task, right? right? This, this is the, that's the real challenge. It's not like, yeah, of course I know how to make a pencil, but like, how do you actually make a pencil? How do you get it done? That's the hard part. And, and even in the example you talked about before, like you said, it's interesting. Okay, someone's got to go get the lumber and then the lumber has to go somewhere to get... Pro- well, even at that stage where people are getting the lumber, like you said, there's tools involved in here and there's there's uh, presumably like large machines that were created to chop down trees and those large machines have yeah. metal and pieces in them as well. So like you keep going down the line and there's thousands, if not millions of steps into just once again, getting that pencil to the shelf. If you really go general and down the line of where each machine tool or person came from to create that uh, or at least I should say contribute their part to making that pencil so that that's very interesting I think I think we do take that for granted most people because as you said most of us are consumers right we just go to the shelf and we just say oh there's that pencil I want or if they're at the 99 cent store or dollar store wherever they may be they say oh I want a little box to put my stuff in I, there's the black one versus the pink one or blue, blue whatever color they want we have all these options but once again all the all the stuff that's behind that most people do take for granted right and then you can get annoyed that they don't have a black one with a blue stripe which is really what you would like Right. Right. <laughs> right. Because you're not thinking about everything that that went into making it happen. Yeah, that's true. And I'll make an argument for why this is not hyperbole. We need to appreciate and understand all of those threads that go into it, uh, because it is all of those threads and that intense specialization. That's what this really is. It's an intense specialization that allows us to make as many things as we make. Right. right. So that's what creates efficiency. If you look around us in our in our world right now, you know, we are unbelievably at least you and I right in, in U.S. and Canada are unbelievably wealthy. Right. Right. Uh, and and I, I know that there's that there's a, a unequal distribution of income. And I understand that some people don't have uh, many of the things that I have. Uh, but even just a average income American. It's just in terms of the access to cool things, it's just unbelievably wealthy, right? And and it, even important things, not just cool, like, you know, valuable, useful things. Um, and, and you have to think about how we got there from where we were. You know, there's a, a story that's, or a, a tale that's told all the time, you know, um, a king in the 18th century um, doesn't live as well as a, you know, average income American now. Right. Right. And, and basically it's, it, we're talking about the technology available, the medicine available, right. Um, the entertainment options available, these kind of things. 
uh, were just not available to people at that point. We've had an immense explosion of consumer goods and uh, technology and knowledge and understanding of our physical world that has led to enormous changes in our standard of living, right? Mm -hmm. But that takes intense specialization. The only way that you are going to get that level of innovation is very intense specialization. People have to focus narrowly in on one particular field. And then somebody has to coordinate all the little perfect specialists in that field, right? And then that has to be coordinated within the bigger system in order to make a product happen, right? So each specialty is then composed of subspecialties, right? right? And so all that intense specialization requires even more coordination, you know? And so the only way that you're getting the kind of machinery that they now have for uh, chopping logs and preparing them for, uh, for the market is with years of study, right? And then experimentation and uh, putting things on the market and seeing how those work and then changing and moving that. Somebody has to just think for years about exactly what angle to put the blade at so that it's going to chop off all the small branches but not get caught, right? right? And then and then shove it onto the truck without, you know, knocking everything else over. Like that's an intense process. Somebody spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I find as well that when we talk about specialization, most people will not run it like they may look at it on Wikipedia or something or see a graph or a cool stat, but most people will not run into in their life even like 5% of the different types of professions that actually exist in both like a national and a global economy. Like, and I find in a lot of examples when people talk about, like, quote, you know, the economy, we're often talking about, once again, from the consumer perspective, like going to a shelf, mostly business to consumer stuff. In in another life, when I'm not working for the Institute for Liberal Studies, I work in strategic marketing, but we specialize in business to business. And when I started mm. in that industry, that was my crash course in understanding, like, the billions of dollars that are exchanged every day that most people don't see. We work on projects to sell, for instance, a, um, a company will develop a piece of equipment to sell to a, let's say, a distribution facility or a manufacturing plant. And like that could be worth millions of dollars as a contract. Now, nobody in their day-to-day -day life when they're going to get their Starbucks or going to the Walmart they don't care about that kind of interaction. They don't care about that transaction that somehow leads to them getting something on the shelf eventually. But there, there's so much going on in the background too, billions of dollars worth that most people don't see every day. Yeah, and it's just churning. If you think about, um, you know, Walmart sort of pioneered the idea of um, of just-in-time like market um, adjustments to price, you right. know, in their stores and these kind of things. And But what has to go into that? You know, like just here's the creation of the barcode and here's the creation of scanners that can read barcodes and here's the creation of portable scanners that can read barcodes. Right. And then, and then there's the software applications that have to take all this information and then translate it into something that's valuable and useful. Right. So now it is astounding how many people have to have different specific jobs in order to make this whole machine, I shouldn't say machine, organism run, you know, that that is the market and to do everything and to make everything as cheaply as it as we can and to get as much out of our limited resources as we can, you have to have that that level of specialization. Uh, yeah, so it's this is the I think this is the hidden part of uh, the miracle of the market as consumers, like you said, we just walk in, we expect to have what we want, right? When it's not there, we're annoyed, but mostly it is there. Um, we always think the price is too high, right? But, you know, it's, it's better than nothing. We just don't think about all of the um, amazing interactions that are having to go on in order to make that possible and, and and to think about all the adjustments that have to be made in order to make that possible. You know, if, if you have 1.3 million people that are all having to do something in order for you to be able to go and get cream cheese for your bagel, how many of those things went awry? Right. Right. I'm sure many of them did. 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. And then the amazing part is after we have a discussion like this for a few minutes and say, look at all these parts involved. And then you look at the cream cheese on sale for like two bucks or something. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> how does this happen? And that's ultimately what we're exploring today, how that kind of thing actually happens. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that kind of leads into what I want to talk about as well. Like I wanted to get your sort of general thoughts on what prices really are, because most people think of, oh, that's just what I pay. But in reality, prices are just one in a long chain of signals that make the economy work, right? They're ultimately communication devices for people to coordinate their activity. Yeah. So prices are just information bombs. They're like information capsules, right? They uh, have everything in them to uh, indicate that what we should do, how we should uh, allocate resources. I want to be a little bit careful here because as starry-eyed as I get when I'm thinking about the market, uh, there there is a difference between you know what the market does and what it can do. Uh, there's a difference in there's there's some nuance in even what it does and what people think it does. Even the, so, even people that are like me um, who are always amazed by the market, there's. There are some caveats, I guess, that I'd like to bring in, and then we can talk about how prices kind of fit into that. So I'll, I'll give you a quote from Hayek from the Use of Knowledge in Society, which is a really, which is to me, it's kind of the seminal article on what prices are and what problem they're solving, right? And uh, so he describes the economic problem as a problem of how to secure the best use of resources known to any of the members of society for ends whose relative importance only these individuals know, right? So just to kind of take this in, in parts, uh, the first is how to secure the best use of resources known to anyone for ends whose relative importance only the individuals know, right? So basically the problem is we have resources, we have to we, we know we want to serve some ends of individuals, right? Individuals in society. We want to uh, create things that will make people better off. And we have to figure out how to use our resources to do that. Okay. So prices really come in and figuring out how to use resources and what ends we're going after. Let's think about where prices come from. That will help. So if you have produced something, so we're going to make it super simple right now so that we can think about this. So if you've produced something, uh, you know, you're a baker and you are producing bread and you are then hoping to sell that in order to, you know, finance your um, love of sunflowers. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm imagining like some beautiful <laughs> place in the south of France, maybe. So, <laughs> so, so you make the bread, you've bought a bunch of things, you've made an investment, right, in this, and you've had to pay prices for that. Uh, and then you are going to go out into the market and you're going to, um, you're going to sell this. So you go out and you, you know, basically kind of yell around like, who will pay $5 for this? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, either some people sort of raise their hands and say, Oh, I'll pay $5 for this, or they don't. And, uh, and if they don't, then you say, who will pay $4 for this, right? And so there's, there's kind of a um, internal auction going on, right, where the seller is trying to get as much as they can for their product. Um, and so, you know, they offer a price, oftentimes sellers offer a price similar to what other sellers are offering to kind of, because they know consumers will pay that presumably. Um, but oftentimes they try to distinguish their product so that it's not perfectly comparable to anything anyone else is selling. And they try to sort of define their own price for that. Right. So that's not really a market price yet. That's just an offer, Right. So a market price comes once somebody has agreed to pay what the seller has asked. So people get this confused a lot on eBay. <laughs> so um, somebody's like, you know, jams from the 80s are selling for $80 on eBay. And I'm like, are they selling for $80 or is someone just asking you to pay $80? Right, right. right? That's two totally different things. Right. Right. So, so market prices are once people have started buying and selling something for that price. So once the, the actual transaction is taking place and really once it's taking place regularly, it's not like one time, you know, this is happening, then you have like, oh, that's the market price. Really what we think of when we're thinking of the market price is 
basically what, as a seller, you could expect to sell this for, and as a buyer, what you could expect to buy it for, right? So this implies a transaction that's occurring multiple times, uh, and that is occurring in many locations. Typically, it's not one spot, right? Where So if you have similar types of products, you're expecting similar types of prices. So this is what a price is. So it's an accepted offer, right? Uh, and so if you think about this, there's two halves to that. You have the seller half, they're the ones who put the offer out, and then you have the the buyer half that uh, accepted it, right? So in order to understand the information that prices contain in them, you have to think about both sides of that. So a seller, before they offer something for a price on a regular basis, uh, they've bought things, they've made some sort of an investment, they've made an investment in time and effort, but also materials, and then they have some sort of costs that's associated with that. And it's both the monetary costs of buying the uh, products that was necessary to make their product, but also the cost in terms of their opportunity cost of their energy and their effort, right? And so the price that they're going to be willing to regularly offer on the market for their good is going to have to cover all of those costs, right? If it doesn't, they will go out of business, right? So the price is going to the price that the seller is offering is going to embody all of those opportunity costs that the seller has for those resources, right? And it goes back even another step. So when the baker has to buy flour, right, what determines the price that the baker has to pay? Well, basically the price that someone else would have been willing to pay for that flour, right? And so what's going to determine the price that that, uh, so it's not this baker then, it is um, a pizza maker down the down the road who's also willing to pay for this flour, right? So this pizza maker, what's going to determine how much the pizza maker was willing to pay for the flour that the baker was bu- trying to buy, right? Well, what the pizza maker thinks that she is going to be able to get out of it, right? How much she thinks her customers want pizza, right? So that's going to determine what the... Um, Miller is willing to sell the flour to the baker for is what the pizza maker thinks that her customers are willing to pay for pizza, right? And so they're very interconnected. Right. This and, and the and the chain just keeps going further and further and th- further. Essentially, whenever you buy a material that is going to be used in the further production of something, right? That material could have been used for something else. And the price of that resource is going to be dependent on the opportunity cost of the owner of the resource. So whatever anyone else was willing to pay for that resource is how much you're going to end up having to pay for the resource, right? They're going to a little bit, if you're the winner, right, then then you have to pay a little bit more than they were willing to pay, right? So that price that you're paying embodies not just what, you know, you think is a good investment, but the, the investment choices of everyone else that could have used the resource. So it's like this little spider network, right? It shows you everything that else that could have been done with the resource. It's like the opportunity cost of that resource is embodied right there in the price that you pay for it, right? The value that anyone else would have put on using that resource. You have to pay that value because if you don't, you're not going to get it, right? You're not going to be able to win the auction and buy the resource. So that's just one little piece, right? You have, that's one resource. And that, that stays, that's true for every single input in your production process, right? Whenever you buy it, you are um, competing with everyone else who could want to use it. And you have to pay a price that's higher than what anyone else would be willing to pay, right? right? So those producer prices show the opportunity cost of the resources in any other production of any other good that could be produced with it, right? Think about it. And that's something that people that like we talked about, you know, the market in general, but even just with prices, that's all for sure. A lot of stuff that people just take for granted every day, because once again, it doesn't impact them, right? They just get to go to a shelf or something like that and, and see a price listed. And to them, what a, what's a price you ask them? Oh, it's just what I got to pay for this. But as you just explored, like, it, it's a lot more than that. If you ask what is a price, especially to someone like you, it's not just what I got to take out of my pocket to pay for something. So that's, that's incredibly interesting as well, that when you really get down to it, uh, as you said, we just explored one piece of it as well. That's not even, maybe we provided like the beginning of it, but that's definitely not an all encompassing thing of what prices indicate either. Yeah. What's cool is that, uh, people, so when we're talking about the costs that producers face, um, they don't, they tend to see those as fixed, 
like 10 costs, you know, 10 cents per sheet or whatever it may be. They tend to think of these as fixed costs, but of course they know that they change, but it's, I think a little too far removed to think about why they change. Right. Um, but yeah, resources are always in competition, right? right? And the price is going to reflect what other people, what people value those resources used in alternative production processes. That's what the price is going to reflect. So your producer price, the price that sellers are willing to sell for, um, your supply curve, if we were, if we were drawing on a whiteboard, is reflecting the value of all those resources in alternative uses, right? So what is the consumer price reflecting? The price that I'm willing to pay as a consumer that reflects, again, the value of alternative means of solving my problem, essentially, right? So how much am I willing to pay for um, a cup of coffee, right? Well, what are my alternatives? I'm willing to pay as much for a cup of coffee as the next best alternative to fixing my caffeine problem <laughs> costs. Right. Right. So essentially, if you think about it, they're both actually measuring the same thing. Right. What are the alternatives? What are the alternative uses of that resource? What are the alternative um, products that could fix my felt uneasiness? Right. That would serve the need that I have at the moment. And and that's what prices really give you. Right. They they represent these the network of every other product in the economy at every moment. I mean, the price of a cup of coffee shows you, right, how much people want to use beans in the process of creating caffeine in this form versus using beans in the um, process of creating a brownie. We're at about the time to take a break, so I think we'll do that right now. I think we provided an excellent background for the rest of our discussion. So we'll be right back on The Curious Task. I'm talking with uh, Jen Deermeyer. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Liam O'Brien, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with uh, Jen Deermeyer today. Uh, Jen, before the break, we were talking about uh, the market in general and what it can do. And also we were talking a lot about prices and we were just rounding off that discussion, how, how important those prices are as sort of information capsules, um, as, as you termed it. Um, why do people then think that they can distort or control prices then? Because based on our discussion in the first half of our episode, if, if these are organic and sort of naturally moving information capsules, as you said, when someone comes out of the woodwork and says, you know what, that, that price is too high over there. Let's you know put a price ceiling on it or something like that. Let's uh, control that price. I don't think rent control is an example that comes to mind. So uh, maybe we could quickly touch on where sort of that idea that you can control a market in that way comes from, but more importantly, then get to what the actual effects of some sort of policy like that would be. Sure. So yeah, I think we just need to finish uh, exploring the role of prices in the coordination system sure. to really understand why it's it's dangerous. Uh, well, not dangerous. Why why it has unintended consequences to uh, to to adjust prices um, extra in an extra market means, right? So so we have these prices that that contain all this information about the relative value of the alternative uses of resources, right? So this information is then passed along so that everyone can see it, right? Everyone sort of knows uh, the price of pencils is increasing, uh, the price of uh, chopsticks is decreasing. So what does that mean exactly, right? Um, it means that as a producer, I might want to get into the pencil business, right? Uh, as a consumer, um, I'm going to be a little bit more careful about my consumption of pencils because now they're creating uh, a more constraint on on my purchase of other things than they used to be. So I'm going to adjust my behavior no matter what side 
I'm on. If I'm a producer, I'll, I'll adjust my production decisions based on prices. If I'm a consumer, I'll adjust my consumption decisions based on prices. And it's all that adjustment that is required to make that coordination that we talked about earlier happen, right? So the only way I know as a consumer that I need to be more careful with my pencils and not lose them, right, um, is to notice the price. And to say, okay, you know what? These resources are used more valuable, or are more valuable use other places. You know, I don't want to do this, right? I don't, I don't, I don't need to pay that high price for the pencil, right? Um, I'll let other people who obviously value pencils far more than I do <laughs> be the ones in line to pay that price for the pencil, right? Um, as a producer, I the only way that I know that all of a sudden people are wanting to pay more for a pencil is if there's a high price, right? And so that's that's how I know to switch my my resources into that area. So when we see things changing in price then that gives everyone a signal as to how to react. And that's what actually creates the coordination. So if there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico and that causes um, a lot of damage, right, uh, in New Orleans. So I used to live in New Orleans. So so that's a big, that's a, a recurring problem in New Orleans, right? So, um, and there's some pretty predictable things that happen. You know, plywood sells out, um, after the hurricane is gone, construction costs are high, right? And construction materials are scarce. And so the prices are high. So what happens in response to that? Well, well, two things happen. So people who were going to use plywood to build a chicken coop out back don't use it for that anymore, right. right? Which we think is actually good, right? In terms of the social order, because now people need to use plywood for making sure that they're secure in their shelters, right? right. So we don't really want people using it to build a chicken coop, right? Um, and then also people from neighboring states, producers, suppliers of, of construction equipment and materials start to take the extra effort to travel into the affected area, right? With these construction materials that are so necessary, right? What brings people to the point, both consumers and producers, of getting those resources where they're really needed is the change in prices. If you don't allow prices to change, you won't get either effect, right? So if you don't allow the price to change, then what is going to stop somebody who's trying to build a skateboard ramp from going to buy plywood and building their skateboard ramp? Nothing. Their choice is just going to, that's going to be what it is, right? But that means that somebody else isn't going to be able to buy the plywood to fix their broken window. I think this is a very important point, especially because I did want to touch on something like a natural disaster and what it does to prices. Because I think a lot of people who are listening to this that aren't convinced the idea that letting a market do what it needs to do is the best idea in all cases, they they maybe sometimes, I guess, in what, if I'm pulling from what you're saying properly, they fail to consider, like you said, the broader social implication of what that price is really doing and how it's coordinating things. Someone who goes to get some water or something like that during a natural disaster and sees the price shot up from their sort of microcosm, from their perspective, they're saying, well, this is ridiculous. I'm trying to buy water. It's like 10 bucks a bottle. What am I doing here? But what you're saying is that on, in the macro, it's actually a coordinating a problem and for the better. Yeah. So yeah, I can touch explicitly on the idea of price gouging laws and, and um, what, you know, what those do and why people support them um, in, in just a second. So yeah. Um, if you think about what has drawn, you know, people, people have to, to take these resources if they're coming. So let's say you're a producer, a construction, let's say you're a, a general contractor who works in, um, in Tennessee, right. And all of a sudden the prices are really high for contracting work down in Louisiana because of the, because of the hurricane. So it's an extra effort. It's difficult, right. What's going to bring you down there is only higher prices, right? Uh, otherwise, there's no reason. So on both sides, you have people ha needing to make adjustments for the betterment of, you know, use of resources for society. But the only way that they're going to do that or even really know that they should do that is if we let the prices change. So what happens if we don't let them change, right? So what happens if we say, no, you know, plywood is a necessity. Uh, people just, you know, had their homes destroyed. We are not going to let that price rise, 
right? We're going to, we're anti-price gouging. We're going to keep it low. So the result is that we don't have enough plywood because people are not going to start rerouting all of their supply chains to get plywood, additional plywood into, into Louisiana, right? And people are not going to self-restrict on their uses of plywood for non, uh, you know, uh, emergency situations, right? Why would they? Right. There's not, they, frankly, they don't even know that they should. There's no signals to tell them to do it, right? right? The price is the signal. So if you don't let the price rise, then you have no way of knowing. Well, even something like like a bottle of water, right? Other than the the like a hurricane destroying your neighborhood, which is a signal you might want to go get more water. When you when you go to the store and say, "Oh, look, it's still on for a buck a bottle." Hey, like there's a lots available, may as well stock up. And then you know one one family or one set of people gets a year supply of it, and then the people that come in later don't have it. Once again, this is assuming some sort of uh, imposed like price ceiling once again, like in your example, right. that if if you go to the store and the price is still as it is because of a law that's passed, no, no, water, bottled water, we're not allowed to raise that price kind of thing, then you're going to end up with that kind of shortage and someone will stock up. And it's not that they're being evil or selfish or anything. That'd just be the incentives at play at that point. Oh, like I better stock up. My house almost got destroyed. I need water. But how that affects other people in terms of how they ration all that and deal with the scarcity is would that, that really screwed up, quite frankly. Right. And they and honestly, it's really not that they're being bad people. Mm-hmm. They literally don't have the information to know that this is more useful somewhere else. As far as they can tell, all they know is themselves, right? Right. All they know is themselves in their neighborhood. As far as they can tell, like, this is the best use of this water. I want to be safe. I want to have water, right? You know, if you don't let the price rise, people don't know that there are other people willing to pay more for it out there, right? And so here's the, the problem, though. Prices reflect the willingness to pay, Okay. But willingness to pay is not something like I just get to declare, hey, I'm willing to pay this, <laughs> right? In order to be able to be willing to pay something, you have to have the means to pay that as well. Willingness to pay is really as much as a function of both preference and opportunity set. Right. So your, your income and your budget determine that, right? And this is the real problem. And it's a problem that I acknowledge and share, actually. I see this as a real problem. If you allow prices to rise in an emergency situation, and that there's no doubt that that is helpful in terms of getting the information out there to both suppliers and consumers about the relative value of the resources used here, right? But if you allow that to happen, you are going to preference people with higher budgets in, ter- in, in these situations of emergency, right? Because people that don't have the opportunity set as much as they would love to say, I'm willing to pay $16 for that bottle of water. They just don't have the bank account to support that willingness. Right. And this is the real motivation behind, you know, price, anti-price gouging laws and all sorts of things like this, right? You don't want to put people in a situation where they cannot afford to buy the things that are necessary to survive. It's not something anybody wants to do, but especially after there's been a major disruptive disaster, right? So this is, I think, the the charitable motivation for uh, anti-price gouging laws, you know, and, and I acknowledge it. This is not something that the market, the market can't fix that. Right. Right. So this is something the market can't fix. It cannot fix it. Over time, what will happen if you allow those prices to rise is that people will bring in goods from other places and the prices will fall back down, right? Mm-hmm. That's what happens. But in that immediate moment, the market can't fix that, right? And so uh, what I often suggest is that we try to fix it without messing with the prices, right? right? So I think prices should be protected. We should never, if we can ever find a way to, to solve our problem without messing with the actual prices, then we should do that, right? Um, because else, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're running around blind, right? So my, for, for example, a suggestion would be to have um, a public fundraising effort to get people water that need it, as opposed to keeping businesses from raising the price of water. Right. Right. But again, people have, they have, you know, they're uncomfortable with that as well. You know, these business businesses are profiting off of our disaster. Um, and I understand the, the concern, you know, frankly, I do, I get it. Like 
it feels like, well, you already had this gas, right? So, so people often are, uh, they talk about this with regards to gas during an emergency. You have the gas. It's under your gas station right there in the tank, right? So what do you mean all of a sudden it's more expensive? It didn't cost you any more to get that gas, right? right. right? It's sitting there. It's been sitting there the whole time, mm-hmm. right? This is not even different gas than the gas you had, you know, yesterday before the price went up. It's the same gas. Why in the world was it more expensive now, right? And so it feels bad to let the these business owners uh, get more out of this gas, even though they didn't pay more for it. Right. So right. it feels very uncomfortable all of a sudden that, you know, cause you can, you're just, you, you do the math real quick and you realize like, wait a minute, you're about to make a lot more money off this gas than you were going to make off the gas because something terrible happened to us. Right. Yeah. But in the, in the context of our broader discussion, what, what you're ultimately saying is that if people want to help, it's not the best way to do that is not to mess with the prices. The best way to do that is to, okay, to fix the problem of the water, fix the problem of the gas, get, bring people gas, get people water. Don't go and mess with a supplier or a store that's trying to sell a bottle of water kind of thing and, and mess around with those prices, for instance. That's not the solution. The solution is, if, once again, if someone wants to help solve the problem with what is missing. Yeah, that's right. Even though it's still going to, you're going to have to sort of swallow the pill that the business owner is going to make more money off of this item than they would have otherwise. Right. Right. You're just going to have to deal with that because it's, it's necessary to make sure that the information is flowing to where the information needs to flow. Right. right. If we don't allow that to happen, then we will have a longer adjustment period. We'll have shortages. We'll have people going really without what they need for much longer than if we just bite the bullet and allow the gas station owner to make an extra 20% on this gallon of gas than they were going to make otherwise. Well, I mean, and, and on the flip side, pe- people don't mind if they're the people don't mind if the whole thing's flipped, like putting aside a natural disaster for a second. They, they don't people often don't mind if they're the supplier in that situation and the buyers paying a price higher than normal. Like I have a few people right. I know, for instance, that they are, um, you know, vocationally trained. They have a very good set of skills, you know, uh, white collar jobs in some small towns is what essentially they're working right now. And they are actually being paid higher than what you would grab in like Ottawa, where I am right now, or like Toronto or something like that, because there's I guess you could call it some form of a, a, a quote shortage for like what th- their um, for what their skills are in that small town. So they're paying they're they might get paid like two times more for a certain job. Like I'm thinking like an accountant here, a certified mm-hmm. accountant or something like that in a, in a smaller town. And when you flip the equation around like that, most individuals don't mind if that happens at that point to them. Right. Right. Yeah. Anytime you have low supply and high demand, the price is going to be higher than it would otherwise be. Right. So right. whether this is uh, people that have certain tech skills in small towns or it's people that, you know, have gasoline right after, right before a hurricane, right. Um, low supply, high demand is going to get you a, a nice premium. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so, uh, I do think that it is, I think it's hard for people to handle that idea that that's going to happen, but I think it's imperative. And I think that we do need to, I am fully in support of, of making sure that we are taking care of, you know, our communities, right? I um, am not in some sort of position where I don't think that that is something that the community should worry about. It absolutely is. We just shouldn't expect markets to fix it for us, right? right? This is one of the things that markets cannot do. They cannot, ensure that everyone has what they need. They cannot ensure that what is given out there is equitable, right? Markets can't do that. That is not a function of markets. Uh, They can provide us more things and they can provide them cheaper over time. And that's it, right? That's what they can do. They cannot ensure that everyone has what they need. They can't ensure that the best things get produced, right? So, Instead of criticizing markets for that, I think we should keep looking for solutions to it that are outside of markets, right? So um, the great thing about the market or a system that is based on the market is is the volunteerism, right? Uh, There's nothing stopping you from trying a solution that is uh, using all of what the market brings us, but is not relying solely on the mechanisms of profit right to make something happen right um so yeah i think that we should we should look for those solutions we should accept our responsibility to find solutions for problems like that 
right? I accept that. Um, but we shouldn't expect markets to be the solution. So far, we've been talking a lot about what markets uh, can be doing and, and, and what they do do for us as well. But let, let's go a bit deeper into what you just started there, which is what generally markets can't do. And then, of course, we can end off with some alternatives to markets if, if we, we get that far. Yeah. So I think that the biggest problem that people have, so crit- critics of um, what might be called free market economics or free market ideology uh, the biggest problem that they, I think the most serious, let's put it this way, the most serious criticism that comes up is that um, markets are by no means uh, perfect. Um, they fail, right, it, it, to bring us what it is that we really want. Um, all the costs are not actually captured in prices. Um, there's a lot of externalities, costs that are not actually part of the market process that are left out of the calculation. And they don't do anything to address some of our deepest um, social issues that arise because of um, both wealth and income inequality, right? And I think this is a perfectly fair criticism. Markets are really good at bringing us stuff. So if I can return back to this quote that uh, that Hayek gives us in the beginning of the use of knowledge in society, um, the problem is to secure the best use of resources. See, my problem there is the word best. Hmm. Who is determining what best is, Right. Um, I don't think there's a way to define best. I couldn't look out into the market right now and say, okay, the product mix that I'm getting offered right now is the best use of resources. I don't even know what that would, I can't even conceive of what that would mean, right? Right. There's a lot of, there's a, there's a big value judgment aspect to that conversation as well, right? Anyone can look around and say, well, that's not the best use of that in their own judgment, right? Exactly. And that's valid, right? This Mm -hmm. is not an argument that's really going to be won. I mean, you know, it's like, it's, it really is subjective, right? Um, And markets, they don't, you know, every single thing is a compromise. Every single product is a compromise on the market. You know, I think I mentioned earlier that I want the pencil box that is black with a blue stripe. Right. Well, why am I not? Why is the market not bringing me this pencil box? Well, because not enough other people want that pencil box and people want black ones or they want blue ones. And sorry, you know, we can't give everyone everything. Right. Um, So every product, every offering, every good, every service on the market is a compromise of different people's values. Right. Uh, There's no way to say what's best about that. So economists rely on this idea that um, only individuals know what is best for their use of resources and that what the market does is blindly give people what they want to use their resources on. Um, This is true-ish, right? The market gives us a range of choices, imperfect uses of our resources that we can choose uh, best and, and, um, or I should say better or worse, right? It gives us trade-offs, but it doesn't give us best I know for a fact that I'm not getting what I exactly want, right? It's not giving me the best use of my resources, but it couldn't. There's no way. that It's just not feasible. Maybe at some point we'll all have, um, on Star Trek, what do they have, the, uh, that machine that just creates whatever the thing is that you want at the moment, you oh, know, right, like right, yeah. materializes it out yeah. of the air, right? So maybe someday we'll have that, but we don't have that at this point. Um, so, but even more than that, there's like a broader question about whether the term best use of resources really means just bringing people all the stuff that they want, right? It's not just that each thing on the market is like a compromise between a lot of different people, but it's also like within yourself and your own motivations, there's conflict there, right? So I don't know that this word best, um, really is even like intelligible right. in this context. Yeah, that's a really know? good point. And I, I think it sort of leads to the idea that people want to judge, you know, the free market or the market as as good or bad or what really is going on here yes. when in reality it kind of just is. Yes. 
That's exactly right. It is not good or bad. It's a mechanism. The outcomes that you see from it and other things, by the way, there is no market without all the other things that are around the market, right? Um, but but the outcomes that, that you see, you may like more or less, right? You can judge those as good or bad, but the market itself is not good or bad, right? It just it's a thing. It's like gravity, right? Exactly. And, and when most people say, oh, the market's good, like in their judgment, ultimately, when you really get into it, what they mean is that, you know, a variety of circumstances has made them believe that for them, it's generally worked out. So, you know, that's a result that they like. So therefore, the market is good. But in reality, what they're talking about is the market has rendered certain consequences and results for them that are good. And that's fine. But once again, it's not a judgment of the market itself as some sort of moral force. It, it again is what it is. Yeah. And so the criticism that, you know, for some people, the market is rendering circumstances that they do not like. Mm-hmm. Right. And legitimately do not like, uh, you know, the market provides an enormous array of both products, but also production possibilities. Right. So you can be part of that production system in so many different ways, but we don't all get to choose evenly where we decide to go and be part of that production process. I right. think we have sort of, like a naive belief that um, everyone can, you know, achieve the amount of education to do the thing that they have a passion in doing, that this is frankly just not not true, right? right? So people end up doing jobs they don't really want to do, and they do it for money that's just not great money, and and they're in a circumstance that they don't have a lot of control over. Um, and so in that case, you know, if they're hearing arguments, people are saying, oh, trust the market, the market will provide. Well, that must be quite annoying. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm living proof it's not providing. It's not providing anything, you know. But I mean, of course, it's still providing. But it's not, it's not making, it's not getting us too acceptable. Right. Yeah. I mean, like if there's thousands, if not millions of people that are kind of saying, look, uh, the current economic arrangements aren't working out for me for the reasons their solutions might not be the best if they have some knee jerk reactions to, oh, we'll just have the government run everything or something like that. But <laughs> but but in terms of putting aside their solutions for a sec, their grievances and what they're talking about, these are more than likely legitimate. And it's important to hear what a certain section of society or people at one end of an economic arrangement have to say at that point. Right. So it's you can't just, as you say, turn around and say, well, tough luck. That's the market. Market's great. And just because, you know, you're in that position and that's the way I guess the cookie crumbled. There you go. You know, throw up hands. Right. right. Yeah. That's not satisfying to me. And I'm doing pretty well. So I'm sure it's really not satisfied mm-hmm. to some to someone who is uh, who is not doing, you know, pretty well. So, yeah, I think it's really important, though, to understand what it is that the market is doing right? So that we can understand whether the solutions to these problems, these legitimate real problems that we, I believe personally, do have a responsibility to address, uh, what will have the best chance of addressing it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is, it's, it's, um, I think about the fact that some people are, uh, you know, in jobs that they don't want to be, and they don't, they don't have, you know, very much income, it's very hard to invest in a future. And that is the thing that I think makes me the most uncomfortable is the the thought that somebody is in a position that they don't want to be in. And there's not a, a clear road out, right. And so I take this as a sincere um, challenge, right. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to find a solution to it. And I think about it a lot. And I think this is where the idea of social entrepreneurship comes from, right? Uh, the idea that there are real problems that the market is not going to solve right. because the market solves problems and it makes things cheaper than they otherwise would be. It makes them, you know, further away. Uh, they You can get products from further away and you can get a wider variety of things. That's what it does. That's basically all it does. Right. Right. You know, it doesn't like make sure that nobody has to live on two dollars a day. It doesn't do that. It's not even in the realm of possibilities. Right. Um, If people live like that and they choose to work, then that's what the market will accept it. Right. It's like, yeah, if you if you choose to work for that amount of money, the market will accommodate you in that Mm -hmm. choice. much as it can do, it cannot guarantee that people won't have to make that choice, that that won't be their best option, right? So, but that doesn't mean that we can't, those of us who are concerned with this and who do believe that there are circumstances in the world that are not to the level of acceptable, right? Um, it is not acceptable, you know, that some people live on $2 a day, right? I I find it unacceptable, right? So what, what can I do? Um, I can't mandate that the market be something it isn't, right? That's not going to work. I can't, um, 
just say, well, everybody should get a job that pays the right amount of money. Well, that's that's a market thing. And then now you're trying to like mandate that the right. market be something else, right? That's not going to work. Uh, there's a moment in the office where Michael Scott uh, steps out. He finds out that he's in, uh, you know, he, he realizes that his credit card debt, that, <laughs> debt is just unacceptable. And I don't know if you saw this, yeah, but I remember this he said, someone mentions that he should declare bankruptcy. And so he walks out into the office and he says, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> and, and I just love this moment because um, the idea of just declaring something and then it's true, right? I think we see that so often in the way that people believe that they're going to interact with the market. Like I'm just going to declare that rents are not going to rise anymore. And then they're not mm-hmm. like, well, they are. <laughs> Maybe the money, the money price of rent isn't going to arise, but I guarantee you that the cost of rent, the cost of renting this apartment is still going to keep going up, you know? And so we have to be careful that we're not trying to mandate that the market um, be just something that it isn't, right? And that we, we keep trying to find solutions to these problems um, by working within the mechanisms that the market brings us, and then also just working entirely outside of the mechanisms of the market, working in our communities to create, um, you know, social insurance programs, working um, in our, you know, if you are concerned about the low wages in rural America, well, put your mind to thinking about how, what kind of businesses could, could thrive there, right? Right. Um, it might not get you the highest profit, but that's not always the most important thing to everyone. And so for people who want to spend their life uh, focused on improving social uh, goals rather than um, making the most profit, right? Both of, you know, they're both legitimate choices. Um, so do that, but you can, and you can utilize the market and the power of it, um, but you can't declare that it will be something that it isn't getting from what you're saying that you think that people that are strong proponents of the market let's call them free marketeers for a second uh, you know they that you definitely saying that they should if they don't already probably be a little more receptive to people who are um once again listing off grievances or bringing forth ultimately complaints and statements of this isn't working for a lot of people when it comes to the market because i think a lot of uh people who are proponents of the free market uh sometimes their knee-jerk reaction is to think that hold on someone's critiquing an economic arrangement they must be socialists or communists when when in when in reality that is true of some folks, but not everyone wants a state bureau running the economy. They may just be bringing forward once again, like a grievance about how the economic arrangement is at this current point in time and, and what could be done to, uh, to solve that problem. You mentioned things like social entrepreneurship and charity and things like that. So not everyone coming from that perspective is ultimately anti-market. It's just that they are looking at things, as you were saying, that the market can't do or currently isn't doing and looking at how to solve that outside of the mechanism. Yeah, that's right. I think that I would actually go a little further than you, um, because I will say that I think that many free marketeers um, are not only um, satisfied with the current arrangements, um, but they will go so far as to say that this is the best that we can Mm do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so and and the justification for it is that, you know, ultimately it is the the money uh, and the preferences of consumers that are driving these arrangements. And this may or may not be entirely true, um, but it's definitely at least somewhat true. But, you know, it is just because you have the, you know, consumption power doesn't necessarily mean that that makes it um, it makes it the right arrangement or it makes it the best set of arrangements. So I think that there is a, a willingness to overlook the fact that it's the choices of consumers with money that are driving the arrangements in the market, right? Right. Um, and not not necessarily equally the, the choices of all consumers, right? So I think that it's important to, to realize that um, to the extent that you look around and you think that the inequality is troubling, that you, you do, you know, you, you can't just rely on the market to solve it. It's not going to necessarily solve that. It is going to, it does provide goods for people with lower incomes, right? It does provide low price goods. Like there's no doubt that it does that. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And that's one good part of it. I mean, there's a lot of mm-hmm. people, as you were saying, that the kinds you're referring to before, that say, well, well, things are great anyway. I mean, look, poor people have Walmart. Like, that is true. That is one part of the equation, as you're saying. But as you were going on to say that, once again, that that's not everything. Yeah, it's definitely not everything. And it's and and I think that when someone tells you, hey, it's not everything for me, um, you know, that you should listen to them and that you should think about it and try to find a way to, um, you know, I mean, you don't. I don't, I don't want to say that everyone should devote their life trying to find a way to make other people better off. I mean, I, uh, I think that all of us should do that to some extent, but I don't want to get too moralistic, but, but if, if it's something that really does concern you, you know, um, I would say to the, to people that are, that are very concerned about this, that they're also, um, they're also not, not quite approaching it correctly. Right. So many people that are, uh, concerned about inequality and the current state of affairs and believe that the market is not providing what it needs to provide. Um, many of those people then look to solutions that are not going to actually solve the problem because they don't fully understand the mechanism of markets, uh, or they are advocating, um, you know, policy decisions that are, that are incentive incompatible that will not, that will not play out because the fact that we're all human beings and we respond to incentives. Right. Right. So I think that, I think that going back to kind of what you said earlier, that the market is not good or bad. And I think everybody needs to remember that. Right. I think that the people that are currently free marketeers need to remember that. And I think that the people that are, um, that are heavily government interventionists need to remember that, that the market is a tool for all of us to, to, um, pursue our ends. Right. And so we can do that without thinking that we're going to change the fundamental nature of the market. I think that that's a great place to wind down the episode. Our time has has indeed wound down. So we always like to try and bring it to a conclusion to a finer point if we can by asking the guests, what what do you hope the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what the question is today is? And that is, what is it that markets do for us? Yeah, sure. So I'll think of, um, markets as, you know, this amazing behind the scenes uh, network of helpers that are constantly searching for new and better ways to make consumers happy, right? Uh, And the word happy is, um, is debatable, but to solve the, the problems and fill the needs of people. And what I want people to think of is is to think of that enormous network of um, help in solving our problems as um, as available to you, no matter what your goal is, right? So as available, if you can harness that power of coordination and work with the other seven billion people on this planet to fulfill, you know, your goal. Um, then you're likely to have much more success than if you're trying to work against it. Excellent. I think that wraps it up quite nicely. Uh, Jen Deermeyer, thank you so much for talking with me today on The Curious Task. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 